couple of years ago, I was reading about a 53-year-old man in Arizona who spent four hours a day on weekdays and up to 14 hours a day on the weekends on a virtual online reality game. He had a virtual wife, a virtual home, a virtual pet, a virtual job, virtual hobbies. And as you can imagine, all this time that he was spending on this virtual world began to cause problems in his real world, especially with his wife. And even despite though an ultimatum that he received from her, he could not and he would not give it up. Why? He felt a sense of community. He felt a sense of belonging and significance and meaning. He felt he found some relationships there that for whatever reason he was not finding elsewhere. You know, people yearn for relationships. People are starved for relationships. People want to feel like they belong to a group. People want to feel like they're understood and known. People, they, they want to know that somebody cares about them. I mean, why are Internet chat rooms so popular? Why do we see the, the incredible um, explosion of, of social media like Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or Snapchat or whatever? People yearn for relationship. They, they long for a deep connection. And no wonder, because God has created us that way, right? The passage that was just read out of Genesis chapter 1, the first chapter of the Bible, it says that we are created in God's image. And you can talk about what it means to be created in God's image for a long time, but in part what that means is that we are created for deep and significant relationships. When you, think, when you break it down and you think about what it means to be created in God's image, think about what the Bible tells us about God, who he is, and how it describes him. It says he is, he's a mysterious God. He's a, he's a personal God. He's a powerful God. It says that he is a trinity, three in one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One in three, three in one, a mystery that's hard for us to get our minds around. But, but what we can say a little bit about that is that is regardless if we can totally comprehend what it means to be three in one, one in three, is that... It describes to us a community, a relationship of deep intimacy and knowing, of transparency, of giving, of love, and of truth. And so when, it's, when we talk about us being created in God's image, what that means to a certain degree is that we long for those things. We are made for those sorts of things, those sorts of relationships of authenticity and transparency and so on and so forth. And so when you look around the world, people try all sorts of things to find, to scratch that itch, to find that need met. And sadly, often people will settle for a poor facsimile of what God has for us, what he has in mind for us. Well, today we're going to be starting a new sermon series called Relationship 101. And during it, for the next several weeks, we'll be looking at what it means to be made in God's image, and in particular, what it means to to be made for relationships. And we'll be looking at different sorts of relationships and how how we can best honor God in those relationships, and how God wants to use relationships, those relationships, to change us and transform us. So, for instance, we'll be looking at the relationship of marriage, We'll be looking at the relationship of parent and child. We'll be looking at our work relationships, our friendships. And today we're beginning with, really, if you think about it, the only relationship that the Bible says clearly is going to continue for eternity. And that's the relationship that we have in the body of Christ with fellow believers. So we're going to start (laughs) with that relationship. 
Now, we must remember that although the church is 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 to be organized, it's not really an organization. It's rather an organism. It's the Bible describes a church as an organism in which, which all the people, all the parts of the body are interconnected, living and breathing. It's a movement, a community of people committed to following Jesus Christ together, doing life with Christ together. And the church will, and the body of Christ will only grow and mature as people are committed to each other in deep relationship. So let's let's look now to Acts chapter two, which is really the the first real in-depth description of life in the church that was created by Jesus Christ. So the scene is that in Acts chapter one, Jesus appears to the disciples one last time before he sends into heaven. He gives them a few instructions and he promises that he's going to send them the Holy Spirit. In chapter two, the Holy Spirit comes with power on the day of Pentecost And the result is that (coughs) Peter preaches to the crowd who has gathered because of the commotion. Now, remember, these are not exactly ideal circumstances for for a a church growth and community impact. Their leader, their founder, Jesus, has just left and they have no idea when he's coming back. They are kind of a ragtag group, certainly no more than a few, maybe maybe a hundred or so uh, disciples. And this is a brand new movement. And yet God gets involved, the Holy Spirit fills them with power, Christ is preached, and amazing things happen in the life of the church. Now the first thing we're told in this passage is that, verse 2, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship. And that word fellowship has is, is been kind of cheapened in our day. Um, it's a fabulous word that describes people who do life together with Jesus. They laugh and weep together. They celebrate together. They share together. They give to each other. They receive from each other. They devote themselves to that sort of life. We see that devotion again in verse 46. Every day they continued to meet together. They broke bread in their homes and ate with glad and sincere hearts. Now, if you go through the book of Acts, you see that what is talked about and described by Luke are these little communities, clusters of believers who would meet together in homes. You know, for instance, it says that they meet in the house of a man named Jason, uh, Philip's house, Lydia's house, the Philippian jailer's house, the house of Mary, the mother of John, and so on and so forth. They get together in, in homes and they do life together. That was the church. Remember, they didn't have buildings really as a church until maybe 300 years or so after the birth of Christ. The Holy Spirit did not say at some point in church history, okay, now we're going to switch things up. It started well, but now we're going to think about church differently. Now the church is a building. And church is about going to church once a week, and everything else is optional. The Holy Spirit never says that. The Holy Spirit says, tells us, encourages us through the Scriptures to do life together, to be devoted to each other. So that's the first thing we want to draw out of the passage is that relationships in the church are to be marked by devotion to one another. Now, they get this idea, of course, of being devoted to each other from what they experienced when they followed Jesus around. Jesus never made anybody feel that they're an obligation. He never made them feel that he had to be there. Jesus instead said, I choose you. I I want to know you. I want to understand you. I want to be your friend. I want to do life with you. I love you. Which must have been a pretty radical and affirming thing for them to hear. 
Now, why did Jesus choose these 12 people to do life with? Was it because they were really smart? Because they were well off and could fund his ministry? Was it because they were resourceful or powerful or, or, fluent or influential? No, actually, when you look at the scripture, it's quite the opposite. Peter, as we can tell, was very impulsive. Thomas was a doubter. He questioned a lot of things. Judas was greedy. Their brothers James and John were very ambitious, and they were a little bit of a ladder climbers. There was a man named Simon who was a zealot, which meant he would have hated anybody associated with the government, which meant tax collectors. And there was another man named Matthew who was a tax collector, which meant that he would have hated zealots. I will guarantee you that one of the biggest questions that the 12 disciples had early on for Jesus was, Jesus, why did you choose him? Well, part of what was going on was Jesus was teaching them about life in the kingdom, about life in the body of Christ. He was showing them that life with him would not be a place where you got to choose to only be around people who were all beautiful and healthy and normal, as if that really exists. No, God's design was that the church would be a place where you would learn to love people who are different than you, who are just as sinful and messed up and struggle just as much and just as inconsistent as you are and I am. We learn in relationship with other people who are following Jesus Christ. Jesus prays for them. He serves them. He washes their feet. He loves them. And they discover that there's nothing better than being together with Jesus and with others who love Jesus. You know, one of the most powerful experiences of my life was during college. Early in my freshman year, I met a group of four or five guys um, who loved Jesus, and, and we really grew to, to love each other. We were very different from each other, different backgrounds, different gifts, uh, different likes and dislikes, etc. But it was life-changing because you felt totally accepted. You, you could be yourself complete with them, completely with them. You could be honest about your struggles. You could, you could be goofy, whatever, and they totally accepted you and you felt comfortable. And I'd never experienced that kind of, of community before, and I couldn't get enough of it, They're to my best friends to this day. <coughs> Robert Lewis says that the church is to be a community of irresistible grace. I love that phrase. A community of irresistible grace. It paints a picture of a place and people who are so devoted to each other, so loving, so caring, so willing to offer grace to each other, that it's irresistible, like a magnet draws metal to itself. That's the picture we have of the church in Acts 2. Every day they continue to meet together in the temple courts. <laughs> they broke bread together in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the result of this kind of life together, this devote, devotion, was verse 47. And the Lord added to their number daily those who are being saved. So the Holy Spirit takes this, this group of very different people and he brings them together and he creates a community of love and devotion so deep and so real that it's, it's practically irresistible. People looked at the early church and they wanted to have what they had. They wanted to be with those people. The second lesson we can draw from this passage is relationships in the church are to be safe places to get real with each other. Verse 46 says that they ate together with glad and sincere hearts. Now, the word sincere is kind of interesting. Uh, the word sincere is made up of two Latin words, sin, which means without, and seer, which means wax, so without wax. 
Now, in the Roman Empire, the Romans would have prized Greek statues. And oftentimes, these, old, these centuries-old statues would have been cracked or chipped. And so sometimes sellers would pour wax into the cracked areas to cover up the flaws and make the statue look better than it really was. Sort of like if, you had a, if there was a, a dishonest um, used car dealer and he would use Bondo and things to cover up where there were cracks or previous accidents. And if you found out you had bought one of those covered up statues, you would be disappointed. You'd be frustrated. But if the statue were authentic and if there was no attempt to hide the flaws, then it would be labeled sincere without wax. So here's a new community where people got together and they ate with sincere hearts. In other words, there was no hiding. There was no covering up, no pretending to be something that you were not. No being one sort of person with one group of people and a different sort of person with a different sort of people. And where did they get this idea of being sincere in that way? Well, from Jesus Christ. They heard Jesus say in John 15, I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's <laughs> business. He said, I've called you friends for everything I learned from my father I have made known to you. You know, Jesus Christ was the most transparent, real person that's ever lived. He talked a lot about how people, especially religious people, you know, we seem to have the susceptibility to this. He talked a lot about how religious or people, especially religious people, often try to look good on the outside. But their inner life is really different. A lot of hiding going on. And Jesus said to his disciples, to paraphrase, we don't do that. We're going to be real with each other. No posturing, no pretending. Which must have been kind of unsettling for the disciples. It certainly was for religious leaders. That's why they got so upset with him. But the disciples must have eventually discovered that it was very freeing to feel so loved that they could be themselves completely and feel, still feel accepted and loved. They must have loved being a part of that sort of community. Now, I'll tell you one of the things <laughs> that, uh, that first drew me to my wife, Nancy, when we met 27 years ago, something like that, 26, 7, 8 years. <laughs> Seems like just yesterday. <laughs> We, we, we'd been dating for a few months and I went over to Nancy's apartment unannounced, which is always a little bit dangerous when you're first starting to date. And she and her roommate were just kind of hanging out. Um, she wasn't dressed up, didn't have on a lot of makeup or anything. And I remember thinking, she still looks pretty good, you know. And, but it wasn't just that that attracted me to her. There was something about her character that attracted me to her as well. What I saw was what I got. She was not one person with somebody else. And a different person was somebody else. She wasn't trying to be something she was not to, to impress me or to win me over. She was authentic. She was sincere. And I found that very attractive. Now, we all sometimes struggle with being real. We all struggle at times with being sincere with other people. We can find ourselves sometimes working so hard to, to manage what somebody thinks about us. Or we can try sometimes to embellish a story that makes us sound brighter or smarter or stronger than we really were in a situation. Or if we think somebody's really important, sometimes we can try to make it sound like we agree with them more than we actually do. We can wear too much makeup, too much wax. But when somebody is not that way, there's a ring of authenticity, of integrity, of character 
And we're drawn to that sort of person, right? And we're drawn to that sort of community. God wants our relationships in the body of Christ to be different. No hiding, no more wax, no more makeup, no pretending. Just this is who I am with the good and the bad and the fallen stuff. No veil, no mask. That's God's design. (laughs) To be a place where it's safe to be yourself. The third lesson about relationships in the church is relationships in the church are to be marked by people speaking truth in love to each other. The Apostle Paul says this in Ephesians 4. (coughs) Speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. Now, it seems to be a correlation between speaking the truth in love and maturity. Speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. You know, our capacity for self-deception can be really staggering sometimes, isn't it? We can fool ourselves. We can self-justify. We can self-rationalize. But, but when we're a part of a community who speaks the truth in love, we can help each other see the things about ourselves that need to change, the things that aren't sincere, the things that are keeping us from becoming the person that Christ has created us to be. Verse 42 says they devote themselves to the apostles' teaching. (laughs) And the idea here is that they would get together in their little communities, in each other's homes, and they would learn together about what Jesus taught, not just for the sake of information, but also for transformation. How do I do this? Where am I falling short? Help me to become the person God has wanted me to be. Let's hold each other accountable. Let's speak the truth together in love. When we're in that sort of community... We talk to each other about our character. We talk about our finances. We talk about our time commitments, about our sexuality, about our spirituality, about our marriage and relationship problems or whatever. We, we do this and we speak the truth together in love. The fourth <coughs> thing to pull out of this about relationships in the church is relationships in the church are not <coughs> excuse me, completely free of conflict. Surprise. The church is a place where conflict, which is inevitable because we're human beings, leads to reconciliation and growth. Again, the disciples learn about this in their little group with Jesus. They disappoint Jesus. They let him down. They abandon him in his hour of need in the garden and at the cross. His good friend Peter denies him three separate times. But in John 20, after the resurrection, the disciples are out fishing. Jesus is on the shore. It says he's standing by a charcoal fire. He's got some fish and some bread. New Testament scholars believe that the reason the text tells us Jesus was standing before a charcoal fire is probably because Peter himself was standing before a charcoal fire when he denied Jesus. And so Jesus is recreating that scene. Peter had denied him three times, and so now Jesus asked him three times, Peter, Do you love me? Jesus does not say it to shame him or to judge him. He's giving Peter the chance. He's he's extending the olive branch. He's reaching out to him. And Peter says, I love you. Three separate times. And Peter knows that he's been reconciled. The conflict wasn't just brushed under the rug. It wasn't like, okay, let's never talk about this again. It was reconciled in this new kind of community, the church that was created by the risen Christ. 
You know, of all the institutions and all the gatherings of people, the church should handle conflict the best, right? I mean, after all, we've got the bond of the Holy Spirit. We've got common faith in Christ. We of all people should be able to love and forgive and reconcile and restore relationships. But when that doesn't happen, people become disillusioned. They get hurt. Sometimes they even leave the church altogether and walk away from the faith. And they settle for a poor facsimile of of the relationships that are offered, that they're created for. The fifth and last thing I want to draw from this in the last few minutes is that relationships in the church ought to be marked by ministry where people are met at their point of need. Verse 44. All the believers were together and had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he had need. You've heard this a thousand times, but it's still true. People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care, right? And the church has been given the answers to life's biggest questions. Things like, why am I here? What happens after I die? What is truth? How can I know God? But if we don't serve people, if we don't meet needs, if they don't know we care, the answers likely won't be received, won't be accepted. We might as well be whistling in the wind. In Acts chapter 2, the needs being met are those of other believers. And I can tell you on countless occasions where that has happened in our church, through our deacons, our life groups, men's ministry, women's ministry, people who deliver meals, provide uh, rides, help people move, etc. We don't always get it right, but we try to do our best because we want to be known as people who deeply care about one another. We're also, of course, to meet the needs of those outside the church. We are to, as Jesus says in Matthew 5, let our light shine before all that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. We are to be salt. We are to be light. God wants to draw people to himself. He wants people to be drawn to himself through a community of irresistible grace. As Christians, we really have no right to complain about the state of the world we live in if we are not out in it, right? This little section here, Acts 2, 42 to 47, is a wonderful description of how God wants us to be church. It's a descriptor, a picture of how he wants our relationships to be in the body of Christ. And I believe that as we move that direction, as we increasingly grow in a commitment and devotion and service and truth-telling in love to each other, that people will be drawn. They'll be drawn to something that we all desire, that we are all created for, a relationship with the one who created us, a relationship with with a loving and gracious and powerful God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the example of the early church. And Lord, we pray that we would be <laughs> increasingly marked in our relationships by, by devotion to each other, uh, by a love for each other, a, a, a sacrifice and giving to each other and receiving from each other. That you'd help us, Father, to speak the truth in love, that we would be reconciled and work with, through issues in a way which points people to the gospel and the good news of how you have reconciled us to yourself through your son, Jesus. Help us to be real. Help us to accept 
your acceptance of us. And help us, Lord, to accept others and love them. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Thank you.